Exodus 31. Uh, Before we read a portion of the sermon text, I just wanted to take a moment to uh, thank God for some of our church members. I mean, I'm thankful for all of you, but in particular, uh, uh, Skipper and Nita's community group last night hosted uh, just a wonderful fellowship activity here at the church. Uh, We we were blessed by their group, and, and so, and we had fun. We played bunko. No one got hurt, you know. Some people came close. We did have to sacrifice a card table, um, unfortunately, but we made it through. And, and I just wanted to say praise God for their hard work, and uh, we'll have to do that again. So if you missed it, you can get the chance to be a part of something like that. I also wanted to thank God for Becky Pounds, who took the time to read carefully the passage that we're going to be studying to, uh, this, this morning and next week, or I'm sorry, not next week, but the week after next. Next week is Mother's Day. We'll take a little break. But anyway, she took the time to study this passage and construct a model of the tabernacle, and that is on display in the lobby. And, and what I love about that is that here is an example of a believer in Jesus Christ who understands and lives out the reality that God's word is what transforms and shapes God's people. And that's wonderful, and that's such a blessing. Uh, we, we're in talks right now to make that model the, 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 the model on which we build the new building to, to the south. So, you know, I, I'm just joking, but it's just a joke. But that, that would be quite a building, I think, wouldn't it? So anyway, as you're walking out, um, be sure to check that out. And I think that will bring some of these truths uh, into three dimensions for you. Okay, let's go ahead and turn to Exodus 31, and I'm going to read beginning in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name... Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Oholiab, the son of Ahissamach, of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony and the mercy seat that is on it and all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils and the pure lampstand with all its utensils and the, the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils and the basin and its stand and the finely worked garments the holy garments for Aaron the priest and the garments of his sons for their service as priests and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place. According to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. And the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths 
For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. For six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And God gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning just honestly, burdened, weighted down, and distracted. By so many cares. There are many who are sick. Many waiting on a test result or a diagnosis. Many trapped by a besetting sin. Many lonely. Many confused, doubting. And Father, what we know is that the things that we can see, they're in three-dimensional surround sound, and the things that we cannot see and must look at with the eyes of faith, quite frankly, they are often and have been often this week, dim, faint, and clouded in mist. And so, Father, we ask that you would do this morning for us what you did for the children of Israel centuries ago. We're asking that you would bring your heavenly throne room to earth. That you would allow us to see you in the sanctuary, high and lifted up, holy and pure and just abounding in steadfast love and mercy, forgiving sin and judging the wicked. God, help us to see what is more real than the things that we see in our lives. Father, this morning we pray as well for our brothers and sisters at First Baptist Church of Palapinto and Pastor Dan Ferris and ask that you would do the same for them. Would you make that a congregation that loves one another, that displays in their deeds and their words the truth of the gospel, and that is a light to that community, and I pray that you would grow them spiritually and numerically, and that you would glorify their name, your name in their midst. Father, I pray as well for our worship team and our music ministry team here at Indian Creek. Lord, as I, I studied this morning, or uh, this week, 
this wonderful passage about this incredible, grand worship structure. I was struck with how daunting a task it is for this team to lead us in worship. And so I pray that you would fill them with your spirit and that they would be dazzled by your glory so that they might lead us well. Father, we pray most of all that your spirit would change us by your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning's passage is unique in a couple of ways. Uh, First of all, this is the longest text that I've ever tried to preach from. Six chapters, uh, 243 verses, and more than 6,200 words in the English Standard Version. Uh, More strikingly, though, I think we can all be honest here, there are few passages of Scripture that... Uh, where, where the breathtaking reality described is as far away on the emotional spectrum from what we feel when we read about it as this passage. I mean, think about it. If you were there to witness the construction of the tabernacle or the ordination of Aaron and his sons, you would be blown away by the grandeur and the sanctity and the, just the amazing wonder of it all. And yet, when you come to a passage like this one in your prayer closet, and it's 5.45 a.m., and you're trying to just focus on the Lord and have some quiet time before you go about the business of your day, you'd better have a stout cup of coffee in your hand. Because the presentation, the language, is it comes across, let's just be honest, as a little dry. I mean, what we're reading in chapters 25 through 31 is almost like a schematic or a blueprint. It's like, I'm going to look at the schematic, and then I'm just going to describe to you what I'm looking at. And for six chapters, that's what we get. There's a lot of technical detail. So there's this wide gap between what we feel when we read about these things and what we would have experienced if we saw those elements coming together and being built. And it struck me as I was studying this week... That that very gap, the gap between leafing through a repair manual and actually revving the throttle on a Harley Davidson, that the gap between shopping with a grocery list and enjoying the five-course steak dinner later that evening is an illustration of the type of gap that something like the tabernacle is actually designed to close. I mean, think about it with me. Israel is living in the desert. There's nothing there. Just brown dirt and blue sky. And yet, they've just entered into a relationship with the most glorious being in all of existence. But when that mountaintop experience is over and they're called upon to live out the demands of the covenant in everyday life, day after day, as the brightness of that experience literally fades... How will they be able to remember that they were destined for glory? That the moonscape they are traversing is one day going to lead them over Jordan and into the garden of God. How are they going to remember that? What Moses describes for us in chapters 25 through 31 is designed to close that gap. The gap between now and then. The gap between here and and, and there, the gap between earth and heaven. It's kind of like 
if you think about it, it's kind of like celebrating Christmas in the hospital. I've never had to do that. Uh, Some of you have been there. There you are, you're sitting in the chair, your child is lying in the bed, hooked up to machines, her skin is pale and papery, dark circles surround her eyes, she stares emptily at the the half-eaten applesauce, and you and she are just overwhelmingly aware of the thick reality, the heavy weight of the present, and to top it all off, it's Christmas Day, And this is the last place that you would want to spend Christmas with your child. But then you hear a knock at the door. In walks a man dressed in red velvet. And he's got a real white beard and this bowl full of jelly sort of stomach. And and, and his cheeks are rosy and he's cracking jokes. And behind him this group of uh, people dressed like elves walk in and they're caroling and they're singing songs and they bring in hot apple cider and the smell of the cinnamon fills the room and you look at your child's face and you can see her light up as she can now see past the heavy curtains of the present into a world that transcends the here and now. It's sort of like that. What happened? Did they distract you from reality? No, they showed you a greater, more transcendent reality. You and she were caught up in that greater reality that's just more real than the one that you're experiencing in the present. This is a little bit what it's like that, God, that God's giving the children of Israel. They're living, they're finite, weak creatures just like all of us. They're gonna forget where they came from and where they're going. They're gonna get bogged down in the trials of the present. They're going to be tempted and enticed by the sins of the world around them. The truth of the word of God is going to be like a faint AM radio signal while the here and now is in 3D and surround sound. And so God's gonna give them something something wonderful to remind them that there is more. And my prayer this morning is that we would see it too. That we would, that we would understand what they're seeing and grasp not only the, the physical reality of the building, but the heavenly reality that it represents. So here's, what's, here's what we're going to do. I'm gonna start by taking you into my study, so to speak, Uh, Instead of just kind of plating up the meal and then setting it out onto the dining table, I want to bring you into that process of understanding what this text is talking about. So we're actually going to look at some of the raw ingredients rather than just looking at them after they've been mixed together into a sermon, okay? And that's where we're going to start, and then we're going to pull some applications from that study, and we'll be able to connect it to our lives today, and we'll have to leave some of those applications for next week just for the sake of time. So let's start by just going into the study. This text is so central to the meaning of the Bible that we need to understand it from the ground up before we try to apply it directly to our lives today. Uh, This should go without saying, but I'll say it anyway. When you preach, if you ever have the opportunity to preach or teach from a passage of Scripture, you should always pull what you say out of that passage of Scripture rather than trying to shove what you already think into the text of Scripture and then telling people that that's what actually came from God. I mean, amen? 
you might not always see things, in other words, exactly the way that I do on any given week, but when you're listening to a sermon here at Indian Creek, whether it's Jake preaching or Andrew or somebody else, you should always, and I, I trust, I hope that you will be able to observe that whoever's preaching is trying to communicate what is there in the text rather than using the text as a tool to support what they think. You don't need to hear what I think. You need to hear what God thinks. And I hope you can see the difference and understand the value of that. That is what we labor to do here in our church. So from time to time, uh, and, and from the time I began to discern God's call on my life, I, I've made it one of my life's central goals to understand Scripture on its own terms, so that when I stand up before a group of people and say, thus saith the Lord, it's something he actually said and not something I made up. And I learned early on that when I begin to study a passage of the Bible in order to preach it, uh, there, there are two things I need to pay close attention to very carefully at the, at the outset of that studying process. And those two things are context and structure. Context and structure. I say, what do you mean? Uh, uh, context just means what's around that particular text of Scripture. Uh, where's it situated? What was said immediately before? What's said immediately after? What's the historical situation into which the text was written? Where does the passage fit into the overall sweep of Scripture? That's context. What's around my passage, and how does that help me understand the meaning of the passage. Structure just means, how has the Holy Spirit led this particular biblical author to arrange what he's saying uh, so that it communicates powerfully to us today? In other words, is this a story with a plot? Uh, a beginning, a middle, an end, a climax, a resolution, that sort of thing? Is this a discourse with a series of commands? Is this a letter? Is this a poem with stanzas? How's the passage arranged? Uh, David and Andrew and I recently attended a preaching workshop in which we talked about this very thing. And, and we're often reminded in the context of that workshop that, that the passage's context, it demonstrates the relevance of the passage. Why is my passage here? That's what context tells us. Structure tells us the emphasis of the passage, what's being emphasized. So if I want to know why God put these chapters here and what the point of these chapters is, I need to pay close attention to the context and the structure. Well, what do those things reveal about Exodus chapter 25 through chapter 31? Well, look at the context to begin with. In chapter 19, God initiates a covenant relationship with the children of Israel. We learned that several months ago. It's in this chapter we learn that the covenant is going to be a works-based covenant. The Israelites are called upon to keep the demands of God's law, and, in, uh, and, then, and then God is going to make them his treasured possession. It's a works-based covenant. And then in chapter 20, God summarizes those demands in the Ten Commandments, after which he sort of breaks down the demands in more detail in chapters 21 through 23. Last week, we saw that the Mosaic Covenant was confirmed and ratified in chapter 24. Uh, if you remember, the Israelites, they weren't even permitted to go up to the mountain to fellowship with God until... Uh, the covenant was sealed. But once the covenant is sealed with the blood sacrifice, now the elders are able to walk up to the mountain and we're told they actually behold God and God did not lay his hand on them. They're not destroyed. 
So they're actually sitting down to the meal with a God of the universe and they're able to enter God's presence because the covenant has been ratified, it's been initiated. And so we get to the end of chapter 24, this, this high point in Israel's history where they enter into a covenant with I am himself and that's wonderful for them, but there's this problem, isn't there? What's the problem? The problem is that there's a gap in time between uh, when the covenant is ratified and when the demands of the covenant are fulfilled and they get the full blessing of it. They're living in this gap. That's the problem. So Israel has just obligated herself to keep God's righteous rules, but until they do, the covenant isn't going to reach its intended fulfillment. So what's going to happen? They're going to remember this experience and it's going to be wonderful, but then time is going to drag on and they're going to go to sleep and they're going to wake up a few times and their memories are going to begin to fade like they do for all of us. And then they're going to grow old and die and their kids will be born having not experienced this wonderful mountaintop experience. And they're not going to remember it at all, and that will be that. The covenant will come to nothing unless God provides some way to maintain, to repeat, to show, to illustrate, to display what that covenant is all about. And that's what he does in chapters 25 through 31. I mean, think about it. Put yourself in their shoes. Or even think about it today. If you're a Christian, you know being God's treasured possession is better than anything else in the world. You know that. And we're in church. So we're, we know we're supposed to say amen to that. But be honest. Much of the time you don't really feel that way, do you? So often we don't always feel that way. Like if you realized that we know, we know that being God's treasured possession it's better than getting like a, a blizzard from Dairy Queen it's better than making that last payment on your, your mortgage or, or graduating from college or lying on a lounge chair on the beach it's better than all of those things but if we realized that one of those things lay between us and our relationship with God and we realized I've got to set that good thing aside that I really enjoy and like in order to get closer to the Lord we would feel the sacrifice, the suffering of that. Why is that? I've heard Tim Keller put it like this. In, in the moment, one is on audio and the other is on video. Right? One's on audio, the other's on video. I, you can hear the preacher say that it's better to be single than to date that guy who's not really good for your relationship with the Lord. That's on audio. But the guy's on video. I can hear that God loves a cheerful giver. But I can see the new gun that I want to buy with the money I was going to put in the plate. I can hear God's word say that to forsake the assembly of God's people in the gathered church is something that we should not do. But then I see all these people that aren't necessarily always fun to be around. And I think, I'm going to hit the snooze. See, one's on audio, the other one's on video. This is the problem that the Israelites are going to face. They can see the desert. They can see the pleasures of sin that all the pagan nations around them are enjoying. And, and 
They hear God's voice, but the fulfillment of the covenant is going just in our human weakness. It's going to feel a long way off. Uh, So this is where the context leaves, leaves us. It shows us the relevance of chapters 25 through 31. God is going to give them something that will help them to remember that there is a greater reality than the one that they can see around them. And it's really important that we keep this in mind. The function of chapters 25 through 31, those of you who are familiar with the Bible need to hear this, It is not to show the Israelites what to do to get God's attention and earn his love. That was never the point. No, it's it's to give them a means by which to see and feel and know and remember that covenant fulfillment lies in the future. And the struggles of everyday life are not the ultimate reality. That's its purpose. The covenant, did, did you notice this? The covenant has already been confirmed. It's already been ratified. So when we see all the detail that comes after chapter 24, it's important to remember that the details surrounding the tabernacle were never designed to be the basis of the covenant. No, they are expressions of the blessing of the covenant. Context tells us why our passage is here. Why is it here? It's not to pile on more rules because God loves rules. No, it's here to help God's people maintain an outward, visible, repeatable expression of the realities that are more real than the trials and the tribulations and the temptations that they're going to face in their life. We often read it as, oh, here's another rule God's giving me. That's not what it was there for in the beginning, and it's not what it's here for. It's not the way that we should understand it today. But then think with me about the structure of the passage. I know most of us are not literary critics in this room. And so this might seem a little esoteric to you, uh, but hang with me. You're smart. You can do it. Uh, I've, I've got your number. You guys are smart. I hear you talk about the certain types of geological formations and how that affects different types of drilling, and you know all that information. Or I hear you talk about this library of knowledge about how different types of grass and grain affect the way that the flavor profile of the meat comes out when you're smoking the meat. I mean, you know a lot of stuff, so hang with me. One of the things that Moses loves to do throughout the Pentateuch is to hang his thoughts on repeated phrases. That's something he does all the time. So, for example, in the book of Genesis, you read through the book of Genesis, 50 chapters, and multiple times throughout the book of Genesis, he'll say, uh, these are the generations of. And what he's doing there is he's signaling to us there's a transition in the passage. This is an important structural marker. He uses repeated phrases. He likes to do that. Uh, This passage functions in much the same way. Seven times we are told, the Lord said to Moses. Seven times. Chapter 25, verse 1, 30, 11, 17, and 22, and 34. Chapter 31, verse 1, and 12. You could go through and just mark it on your own, highlight the recurrence of that phrase. I first started reading the passage and I thought, why is that? Why is this an extended, super long quote directly from the mouth of God and interspersed throughout seven times is, the Lord said to Moses. Well, look with me at the sixth occurrence of that phrase in chapter 31, verse one. We already read it. On that sixth occurrence, we're told that God spiritually empowers two human beings 
to build his sanctuary and to do everything that he's described in the previous chapters. These two guys, Bezalel and Oholiab, that's number six. And then look at the seventh occurrence in verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to my people of Israel and say, above all you shall keep my Sabbaths. And so in Act 6, God sets up these two individuals to build his sanctuary. And then in Act 7, we have this discussion of rest and a reminder that the focus is on the Sabbath, the seventh day, the day of rest. Does that remind you of anything that happened in the Bible before? I mean, day six, day seven, uh, Genesis one and two, in the space of a single week, God speaks the world into existence. On the sixth day of the creation week, he forms the man and the woman out of the dust of the ground, and he places them in a garden, and he commands them to sort of build this sanctuary for him, cultivate the garden where where he's going to walk with human beings in the cool of the day. And then on day seven, God rests. It's this royal rest where he's able to enjoy the things that he's made. Uh, Clearly, Moses means to hark back to the creation week in his description of how God wants to build and maintain his sanctuary in the midst of his people. This is what he's been doing from the very beginning. So when I take into account the context and the structure of these chapters, and then I begin to think about the sweep of the biblical story, a very clear picture of what God is doing here begins to emerge. The entire book of Exodus takes us on this journey, sort of recapitulating the work of creation. Remember how the plagues unravel creation itself, and then the Israelites are sort of passed through the waters of the Red Sea, harking back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. And then God begins to form and shape a new people and he enters into a covenant with them that's more or less a republication of his covenant with Adam and Eve. And then I think about the details of the tabernacle like how the mercy seat described in chapter 25 verses 17 through 22 is guarded by these two winged cherubim just like the cherubim guarding the entrance to the Garden of Eden. And when I open up my mind to the fact that the tabernacle gets replaced centuries later by the temple of Solomon, and then I think about how Jesus says in John 2 that his body is actually the real fulfillment of the temple, and then how the church of Christ is actually the body of Christ and a spiritual temple, and then I'm I'm transported to the very last pages of the Bible when this great city, a garden city, descends On the earth, this place where God himself dwells with man, where the tree of life blossoms and bears fruit, a a, a city shaped like a cosmic cube, exactly the same proportions as the holy of holies described in chapters 25 through 31. And then I remember how God kept telling Moses that he needs to build the sanctuary in accordance with the pattern he saw on the mountain. A pattern of God's heavenly sanctuary, a place described by the prophet Isaiah as an immense throne room where God's holiness is ceaselessly praised. So when we begin to truly grasp what's going on here, when we see that God from the the very beginning of Scripture to the very last page has been doing one thing, 
God has been doing one thing. He's been working towards one objective. It's a goal he gave to Adam and Eve. It's a goal he's giving to Israel. It's a goal accomplished by Jesus Christ. And it's a goal that gets completed in the new creation. Here's what God is doing. What's the one thing he's been doing? God has been bringing heaven to earth. God, from beginning to end, God's heart has been to enjoy the grandeur of his holy glory by sharing himself with human beings and allowing them to have fellowship with him so that in the ages to come, all of creation might behold his mighty justice and his grace and his holiness and his glory and stand in awe in front of him. Again and again in these chapters, God says, I'm going to meet with you there. In other words, with the tabernacle and the lamps and the altars and the priests and the ark and the mercy seat and the anointing oil and the incense are all designed to do is to show us that the whole point of why we exist is to have fellowship with I am. There's one thing that God has been doing, is doing in this text, does in the body of Jesus and his church and will do at the end of the age. He is creating a royal sanctuary in which he might enjoy his glory by sharing it with and through his human creatures in uninhibited, unending fellowship. That's what he's doing. The dwelling of God is with man. So before we get into the details, the weeds, of what each piece of clothing communicates or the significance of this or that element... Let me just ask you, when you look at the whole forest, when you look at the big picture of what God is doing in the world and you see that he's doing one thing, that he is bringing human beings into fellowship with him, when you see that that's God's goal for you, just ask yourself, how does my life goal stack up against his life goal for me? How does my life's purpose stack up against the whole point of why I exist in the first place. I imagine myself living back then and I wonder sometimes, would my imagination, my affection be drawn toward the sound of the goldsmiths and the sight of the blue and the purple curtains and and the smell of the holy anointing oil or would I have been like the child too busy with the rocks and the dirt and the sand? Isn't that where you find yourself sometimes? See, God's whole goal in your life is for you, body, mind, soul, heart, strength, to be with him. To have a personal relationship with him. To get all of who he is and share his life. There is no other reason why any of us are here. And that's what brings him glory. Is your life goal the same as God's life goal? Our Western worldview bakes into our thinking that the whole point of life is to experience this sense of psychological well-being and satisfaction. You look inside yourself and you ask, what's the maximum happiness that I can achieve? In fact, even people who are not Christians, when they talk with me about my job, they assume that that's my job, to help you feel better. That's just a given in our way of thinking. Some of you have decided that you'll get there by having fun. I mean, you're willing to work. 
you're willing to expend effort, but what fills your mind is how much fun you're going to have. And maybe it's good, clean fun, or maybe it's something a little more sinister, but that's what your life is all about. I'm having fun. For some of you, it's, have, it's having that picture-perfect family. That's who you want to be. That's what gives you satisfaction, or you think it will. For some of you, it's the ideal of self-reliance, like where you don't have to depend on anybody else anymore. We've convinced ourselves that all of this is perfectly normal and healthy. Each person ought to figure out for himself how he wants to use up his life. Like the world tells us that we create our own meaning, that we create our own purpose. And I'm telling you, friends, it is a lie. God has already given you a purpose. The goal of life is not to be true to yourself. The goal of your life is to have fellowship with God. A purpose for which God created the world was so that heaven might come to earth so that the dwelling of God, his royal sanctuary, might be a place where he is with men. And the tabernacle powerfully displays this wonderful truth. That's the big picture. That's the forest. That's where God is taking things. But it, it, it impacts us even today. And it seems to me that there are at least eight ways that this reality controls how we should enter God's presence today. Now, we're not going to get to all eight. You can breathe a sigh of relief. Uh, we'll save six of them for next week, or for next time I preach from this passage. But if the goal of my life is to have fellowship with God and the purpose of Exodus 25 through 31 is to demonstrate, to illustrate what that looks like, then I ought to be able to pull specific ways that God desires for me, for us, to enter his presence even in the here and now. How can we have fellowship with God? How should we enter his presence? Number one, God's people enter his presence in holiness. God's people enter his presence in holiness. Some form of the Hebrew word translated holy is used 56 times in these chapters. The sanctuary is called the holy place. It is separated from an inner sanctuary called the holy of holies or the most holy place. The priests wear a turban with holy to the Lord inscribed on the front. The anointing oil is holy. It's not allowed to be used for anything other than tabernacle worship. The incense is holy. It might not be used for any other purpose. All of these elements of the corporate worship of the children of Israel remind us that our God is holy and that those who enter his presence must do so in a holy fashion. What does this mean, holy? To be holy means to be separate, to be set apart from that which is common or unclean. God's holiness is the myriad of ways in which he's unlike anyone else. His holiness is his unique and incomparable character and nature. No one is like him, and in this way, God is holy in an absolute sense. He is holy in his majesty, holy in his purity, holy in his presence. God's people may only ever approach anywhere near him in holiness. So this great distance between the common person and the, the central sanctuary of the tabernacle, where God promises to meet with his people in the holy throne room above the mercy seat, is an everlasting reminder of the transcendent holiness of God. Now, in our day and age, we look at that as a strike against God. We don't want a holy God. 
we want a God, we, we see the separation between Israel and the nations and, and then the separation between the common Israelites and the priests and Levites and the separation between the regular priests and Levites and the high priest and the separation between the high priest and God. I mean, he's only allowed to go into the inner sanctuary once a year and even then it's shrouded in smoke and darkness. And we see that and we think, why would I want that? I don't like that. We would rather have a God who says, hey man, it's all good. I'm okay, you're okay. You do you. But that's not the true God. Our God is holy, and that's a good thing. He's one of a kind. He has no rival. Guess what? The devil isn't going to win. Because the devil is a creature. He had a beginning. God is not a creature. He never had a beginning. He, his plans never fail. They're pristine. He will never lose. He's holy in his victory. He's holy in his truth. He won't make a promise and then break it. His holiness evokes the eternal, unceasing joy of the most incredible beings in all of the universe who fly around his throne and never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. By, by the way, uh, those curtains, the veil, the courtyard, the curtains that separate all these different sections, they are not in place to protect God from getting dirty. They are put in place to protect you from getting burned by the burning holiness of God. In fact, one of the kindest things that I can tell you about the presence of God is, is that not everybody gets to enjoy it. Stay with me. There is separation between God and his creatures even after the covenant is confirmed. This is the great tension of the Mosaic covenant. God redeems his people. He rescues them out of slavery. He initiates a covenant relationship with him, but they will never measure up to its demands as a nation. And, and so they live constantly in this tension between God's patience and his justice. He's patient with them, but they aren't fulfilling the covenant, and so they can't really enter into its full, full benefits. And it's this tension that Paul talks about in the letter to the Romans. He says, yeah, we're all under sin. All are condemned. On the one hand, you've got these people who exist outside the covenant, and they're condemned. But on the other hand, you've got these people who are in the covenant, and they can't meet up to its demands, and they're condemned. And so, all, we're all falling short of the holy glory of God, so we need to enter God's presence in holiness, but that leads us to our second application, which is this. How do God's people enter God's presence? We need to enter God's presence in holiness, but I, I, we, we must enter God's presence in Christ. We must enter God's presence in Christ. In fact, this is the only way that we could enter God's presence in holiness anyway. We must enter his presence in the power and the person of Jesus. You say, where in the world do you get that from Exodus 25 through 31? Well, yeah, once Jesus comes along and demonstrates to us that all the things written about him in the scriptures talk about how he was going to suffer and die and be raised again on the third day, that helps me understand what's going on in Exodus 25 through 31. Every last detail is ultimately all about Jesus. In fact, let's just home in on one example 
from this text. Think about the candle stand, the, the lamp stand. Uh, it was built out of solid gold and situated in the holy place and lit with oil. Uh, it's described for us in detail right down to how much it should weigh in chapter 25, verses 31 through 40. Why does God give Moses all the detail about the candlestick? Is this something that he saw on, on Fixer Upper and he just thought that it would fit well with the open concept space that he's creating inside the tent? Is that why God chose this candlestick? No. <laughs> no, it means, it means something. It's not just a cool candelabra. Uh, centuries later, John tells us that Jesus went to the Feast of Booths outside the temple in Jerusalem, and on the last day of the feast, the great day, the day when every lamp on that lampstand would have been lit and burning brightly, Jesus himself goes into the crowd and he cries out for all to hear, I am the light of the world. That candlestick, that lampstand, that's me. It's really all about me. The lampstand is fashioned after a tree, an almond tree, to be specific. Uh, the very first tree every spring to bud and flower after a long winter. And I'm reminded of how Jesus declared to Mary and Martha in John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Or how the lampstand has this central trunk with branches branching out to either side and how Jesus told his disciples on the night of his arrest, I am the vine and you are the branches. Remain in me. Every single detail of every element of this tabernacle worship is designed to create categories in the minds of the Israelites that could only ever be filled with one person, Jesus Christ. And this is why John tells us in chapter 1, of John's gospel. You can go back to it. He says the word, that's the eternal son of God, became flesh and literally tabernacled among us. And we beheld his glory. Glory is from the only son, from the father. So if we're going to live out our created purpose, if we're going to have any hope of reaching the most holy place where God sits on his throne, if we're going to have any kind of fellowship with God at all, then we must enter his presence in Christ. You might be a swell guy who works really hard and tries to be fair to everyone, and that's great. But it's not going to make you right with God. You might be the most selfless woman to ever exist, and you just put all other people's priorities in front of your own. But guess what? It's not going to bring you into fellowship with God. There is one person, one way to have fellowship with God, and that's in Christ. Rest in this. You don't need to wonder whether you've been good enough. You just have to believe that Christ is good enough. You don't have to come up with a solution. You need to believe that Christ is the solution. How quickly we forget and how sweet it is to worship, remembering that in Christ, God hears and God welcomes me. You know, part of the task of the Christian life is just to preach this to ourselves daily. Uh, and I mean that literally. You see me driving through Mineral Wells. Some of you have probably caught me doing this. I just pretend that I'm talking on the hands-free cell phone. But I'm actually preaching to myself. Or singing. I, I, I'll be driving down the road and I'll sing, Arise, my soul, arise. 
eyes. Shake off thy guilty fear, the bleeding sacrifice in thy behalf appears. Before the throne my surety stands, before the throne my surety stands, my name is written on his hands. My God is reconciled, his pardoning voice I hear, he owns me for his child, I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh, with confidence I now draw nigh, and Father, Abba, Father, cry. And I sing it that loud. Because I need to hear it. I need to remember. When all the trials and temptations of life are in video, then I need an audio that's going to drown all of that out. There's nothing better than to enter the sanctuary and live in the presence of God. But friends, you'll never get there unless you're in Christ. In him, God has actually fulfilled the purpose of the symbol of the tabernacle. He is bringing heaven to earth. And one day he'll do it finally and fully. Would you pray with me? Thank you, God. You truly meet us in our weakness. You know that we're distracted and trodden down by the cares of the world, and you get our attention. Sometimes it's painful, but you do it. And we thank you for it, Father. Lord, I pray this week that you'd help us to remember that we can be with you and that there's nothing better. We can be holy, but we must be in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing, I think, holy, holy, holy. And uh, I would just urge you, if, if the Spirit of God is convicting you now and you have not been, if, you've, if you have not been valuing fellowship with God and, and the Spirit's told you that needs to be the purpose of your life, or if you've been going after God without Jesus, would you make today the day that you bow before him and give your life to Jesus Christ?